Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and it is my honor and privilege to be able to welcome all of you to worship this morning. Whether you're here in person or on the live stream, we offer a very, very warm welcome to each of you. We're thrilled you have chosen to join with us, to worship with us, as we gather together to worship the Lord this morning in spirit and in truth. If you're a visitor, a first-time visitor, we hope you got kind of our information bag uh, in the narthex. Gives you a little information of who we are, some fun gifts I like to call good swag, and you get some swag out of that, and hopefully it allows us the beginning of developing a friendship with you. And this is for everyone. If you are on the end of an aisle, please get the friendship pads going, and we would ask of everyone to sign in, let us know you're here, it gives us the opportunity to develop that friendship with you all. Uh, it is not too late to begin thinking about summertime. As a matter of fact, I looked at my weather app. It's supposed to go up to like 94 this week. Did anybody catch that? Did, did I miss something that spring doesn't exist anymore? I, I just didn't know if I lost out on something or wasn't, you know, it is highly possible I wasn't paying attention in school. That would not have been the first time I was accused of that. But summer is definitely coming. And now that we're kind of getting back to things and we've enjoyed stuff, the fellowship team, that is under the leadership of Brent and Carol Johansson, that is a busy group. They are like, we are going to keep you busy doing stuff and enjoying each other. The next thing that's on the list for them is the patriotic picnic. And that'll be around the time of the 4th of July, but it will be a week before. This is why I'm announcing it back in May, okay? Because you're going 4th of July picnic, patriotic. We love that. And then I hit this with you. It's June 26th. So Sunday, June 26th, after the worship service, okay? We'll all go down to the pavilion, enjoy things like that. I want you now to put it on the calendar. They're starting to take sign-ups out there. You'll see the sign-ups that are on the table out there. See Brent or Carol or anybody on the team if you have any questions. You have a list of different Bible studies that are offered during the week, women's Bible studies. One thing I'll remind you of is Mary Ann Johnson is doing her book binders group this coming Friday at 10 a.m. They're talking about the book by Rona Weaver called A Noble Calling. Contact Mary Ann if you have any questions regarding that. There are several other announcements that are in your bulletin that you can be attentive to, hopefully after worship. That would be a good good idea. Uh, but now as Amy and Lynn play and lead us in the prelude, let's prepare our hearts for worship.
Our call to worship this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Father, we invoke you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your triune name, to join with us as we exalt and glorify and magnify you. Father, we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the city of the living God. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem where we are joined with innumerable angels shouting to you your praise, exaltation, and honor. We thank you for Jesus, our righteousness, our Savior, who allows us to come into your presence without fear, without trepidation, because he has taken upon himself our unrighteousness, our unholiness. He is indeed the mediator of a new covenant. We praise you this morning and ask that you would be pleased and honored in our praise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, let's stand together as we sing, Come Thou Almighty King. need of confession this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. 
And Jeremiah, in prophesying judgment, indicts the people of God, and in doing so, gives us a little bit of what I'll call a diagnosis of how to look at our heart concerning our own sinfulness. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. And here comes the diagnosis. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now listen to what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying we never kind of just do these sinful actions in a vacuum. They are all the results of certain dynamics that are constantly going on in our hearts. The first dynamic is that we turn away. We have forsaken God, the living God, the one who has the fountain of living water, the only one who can be the source of our life. Our flesh has this tendency to turn away from him. And we, when we do so, there is a void. Those desires have been planted there by God himself, the desires for security and significance and love and intimacy and life. And so what do we do when we forsake the living God? We hew out, we dig out cisterns or wells that can't hold water. In other words, all the places we are looking to for satisfaction, security, success, if we're looking for them, if we're building that identity apart from Christ, they don't hold water. They can't satisfy. So as we go to the Lord in a time of confession of sin, we will start first with a personal confession of sin where I'll give you a few moments to engage with God. And I would ask you to specifically engage with God over these two areas. Where is it that you forsake him? And where is it that you dig broken wells? Wells that can't hold water. And then in a few moments, we will pray together this corporate confession of sin. Let us pray. Let us pray our corporate confession of sin together in unison. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. 
and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is nothing good in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared unto men in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of his name. Amen. And the good news of the gospel is that in and through and because of Jesus, we can be forgiven. Isaiah says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Friends, that is the greatest news you can ever hear. It's not that God has a forgetful memory. It's that because all of your sins have been absorbed into Christ, he has taken upon himself all of your sins, that God's anger has been turned away. His wrath has been satisfied. And so he has dealt with your sins. And if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Friends, let's stand and sing together 10,000 Reasons.
want to share a prayer request with you before we go to the Lord in prayer. I got a text message early this morning from our dear friend Peggy Roberts. You know, Mike had uh, back surgery a few weeks ago. He has developed an infection in his back, and Peggy has asked that we would all pray very, very fervently that that infection can be contained, does not go to the site of the surgery, and that he would not have to have more surgery. And so I share that just because that's something, because it came early this morning, we didn't have a chance to send it out in a congregational e-blast or anything. There are many, many people in our congregation that need our prayers right now that are going through afflictions. How did James word it? Trials of various kinds. And so we need to pray for our faith. We need to pray for our trust in the Lord, for the Lord's mercy over all these things. Let's uh, acknowledge our communion with God first in the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we come before you acknowledging who you are, thanking you that you are the Lord, our God, that we are in covenant relationship with you. And that through Jesus Christ, we have not only been forgiven, we have not only been declared righteous, we are not only free from condemnation, but we have been adopted into your family. That when the time had fully come, you sent your son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because we are sons, you have sent the spirit of your son into our hearts, the spirit that leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. And so, Lord, on the behalf of so many in our midst right now, we cry out, Abba, come near. Father, there is no way I could remember every name. So forgive me for any that I could easily forget. But I pray for Mike. I pray that you would contain this infection. I pray that he does not need surgery again. I pray, Father, for Peggy, that your peace that passes all understanding would be with her. I pray for our good friend Doug Hesse and ask that you would comfort him and strengthen him as he's going through the regime of chemotherapy. Lord, I pray for so many others. I ask that you would be with them. Lord, one of the areas of your word that I believe it, I acknowledge it, it's true, but I have to confess it confounds me, is when James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Lord, I surrender to that, but there are times where I have to confess and admit that is just difficult. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us as a body to pour out our hearts to you, trusting in you. 
and then seeing that joy is not just a superficial happiness, but it's a fullness of life, even living in a difficult world. We acknowledge and trust that you are good and ask, Father, that you would work in all of these folks' lives. And we pray, Father, for the ministry of the church, the elders, the deacons, the home fellowship group leaders, the Bible study leaders, the choir. We ask for every ministry that we would be immersed in the gospel. It is the only thing that gets us through life. Our only hope is the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to not have our affections on the things of the world that are fleeting at best and our broken cisterns that can't hold water. Convince us that these things can't hold water and help us to let go. The promise of the Scripture is that we have died and our life is now hid with Christ in God. And the promise is that when Christ, who is our life, appears we shall appear with him in glory. And so the pattern for you, Lord Jesus, was humiliation and then exaltation, was death and then resurrection. And a pupil is not above his teacher, a slave not above his master. Our path, our pattern is death and then resurrection, humiliation and then exaltation. Enable us to live a life patterned and conformed to the gospel. And so, Father, we cry out, Abba, Father, asking that you would work in us, transform us by the renewing of our minds, sanctify us, set us apart. We ask boldly for the work of the Holy Spirit to change us, acknowledging that the glory, the kingdom, the power, all of these things belong to you. You are building your kingdom. We are working for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
you pray with me? Father, as we approach your word this morning, may this be more than a teaching. May it be a time of worship where we are confronted by ramifications and realities of the gospel of Jesus. And your word, which is living and active, will comfort and challenge, correct and change. As Paul said to Timothy, your word is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So may we surrender to your word, Holy Spirit, be at work in a mighty way, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we're continuing to go through this Mount Everest of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, we come to, I'll call it the next movement of the cantata, the next movement of the symphony. So the next great instruments have started to play, and they're starting to play, and they're talking more, singing more about the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we will look at verses 5 to 11. So was that enough of an introduction to let you turn in your Bibles, do what you need to do, check those iPads, get whatever? Because I kind of like when we're engaged together. That makes it worship. And so I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 5 to 11. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, here we are, the next step up the Bible's Mount Everest, the next movement of the cantata in one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, one of the greatest chapters on the Holy Spirit. I know, Sue, this, I thought of you a lot this week. I happened to study in Romans 8. Sue Burmeister teaches one of our women's Bible studies, and she's been coming into the office telling me that in the fall, she's teaching on the Holy Spirit. So as I am thinking about all this, I'm kind of going, Sue, this, these are, all these resources come for your ladies. So there's your plug in terms of the ladies' Bible study in the fall, but it's looking at who the Spirit is, his character, his nature, his ministry, what the Spirit of God is all about. And the focus as we go through Romans chapter 8, as a matter of fact, Tim Keller brings this out beautifully is on how to experience God. Not to just have God as a concept, not to just have him as an idea, not to have him as an abstraction, but for God to be real. And that doesn't mean just emotional. But real means to impact and affect our whole beings, bodies and soul, all the faculties of our heart, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our affections, 
for God to be real to us. I wonder how often we notice in the scriptures how much Christianity is an experiential religion. Just give you a few samples. As we read through the Psalms, in Psalm 42 it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. If you pant for water, you're experiencing. Being thirsty is not then just an abstraction. And the psalmist says, so pants my soul for you. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, in John chapter 2, I often wonder about why did Jesus, at the wedding at Cana, there he is with some of his disciples, his mother, they're at the wedding, and you remember what happens? They've run out of wine. Uh-oh, disaster. Faux pas on the part of the wedding host. They've run out of wine. Jesus' mother comes and tells him they've run out of wine. And he has this kind of cryptic comment. Woman? I guess Jesus can get away with that. I could never get away with that with my mom. <laughs> Woman, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is not a study on the Gospel of John, but real quick, when he says my hour in the Gospel of John, it is a reference to his death. It is what is facing him. So he says, it's not time yet for my death. And then he says, fill up these stone water jars, do all this, and they come out. And all, Here comes the best wine. Here comes this great, don't you, I wish I knew what kind of wine it was and from what year. So why would the fact that he says he's thinking about his death and then he says, bring out the best wine. Tim Keller makes the comment because he's thinking about forgiveness that you can taste. Forgiveness that you can experience. The Bible talks about Christianity as an experiential religion. Paul in Ephesians 3 says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You know, he's saying you're not strong enough to handle union with Christ. Any tough guys out there, he is calling you weak. He's saying, you know what, you may be able to still bench press 450 pounds. You can't handle the love of Christ. How's that for experiential? And then he prays that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that's just a sampling of verses, and I think somehow that Christianity is a little bit more than just knowing and assenting to the right things. What do you think? Now, how do we do that? Does anybody else besides me in your walk with Christ sometimes get frustrated that it's, like, I believe the right things, just believing is not, I want to experience, I want it to be less of an abstraction and more real. The key is the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is building an argument here in Romans 8. That's why I'm, we're contrasting it with a symphony, much like one would present a symphony, bit by bit until reaching this tremendous crescendo. And the crescendo of Romans chapter 8 that we'll get to just before Father's Day is verses 38 and 39 where he says, For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tim Keller says that the Spirit is in the business of convincing believers that they can't lose God and He can't lose you. Now I know that our friends and us, whatever we're going through, we're all going through stuff, whatever it might be. Maybe we ourselves aren't facing chemo right this moment, but maybe we know somebody who is, or we have a family member we're concerned about. We're all going through, we live in a fallen world, we're all going through difficult stuff in some arena. We all need to know that God cannot lose you and you cannot lose God. And that is what the Holy Spirit is in the business of. And that is how the Holy Spirit transforms us or changes us and makes us, you know, his name's not holy for no reason. That's how he makes us holy, by convincing us and making real to us of the love of Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at how does the Holy Spirit change us? And this text teaches us he changes us by fundamentally giving us two things. He gives us a new direction, and he gives us a new life. He fundamentally gives us these two things. Look with me at verse 5, and he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So let's ask this question. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Notice it says in these verses that the person who lives either according to the flesh or the Spirit, the flesh which is life estranged from, apart from, in rebellion to God. Remember, flesh is not physicality. Flesh is that power that causes us, like Jeremiah said, to forsake God and look for life in broken cisterns. That's what the flesh does. The Spirit causes us to be dependent on God. The contrast here is that we either live according to the desires of the flesh or according to the desires of the Spirit. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what are the desires of the Spirit? What does it mean to have your mind set on the Spirit? See, the Spirit's main role, contrary to say, I wonder if I was to give you a, an exam, give you a quiz. Boy, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Who would want a pastor to give a pop quiz? That's horrible to think about. But I say, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you what some wrong answers would be. The Spirit doesn't zap you with energy. The Spirit doesn't just zap you like with osmosis, with power. The Spirit is not some force. Like I know Star Wars, may the force be with you, that kind of thing. That's not the Spirit. The function of the Spirit, Jesus himself told us this in John chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus says, the Spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. The central function of the Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus by taking from what is His and manifesting it, mediating it, making it real to us. One of the best books on the Holy Spirit is J.I. Packer's Keep in Step with the Spirit. 
Let me give Sue a chance to write this down for her Bible study. Keep in step with the Spirit. He likens the Holy Spirit to a floodlight, a spotlight or floodlight that is shining its light on Jesus. I remember when I was like 14 or 15 years old, and I was still five foot three, but people thought five foot three was tall at age 14. So I played basketball, and I loved basketball. I mean, kind of, have you ever noticed that when I do something, I either have kind of a green light or a red light, that I'm either on or off, I have no, I'm not very good at this moderation thing. So when I preach, I love preaching. You ever notice I do it with passion? I think God made me that way a little bit because when I was 14 or 15, I played basketball, and I played with passion. I practiced all the time, morning, noon, and night. And I remember my father, who would get dark, we had a basketball hoop on the side of our house, and he bought, I think our neighbors really loved him for this, a floodlight so I could practice at night. Feed Jeff's passion well. Because they thought at midnight it was a little late. I happened to go, I'm still practicing. I'm not done yet. But the idea of the floodlight was to point away from myself and point towards that basketball hoop. The spirit is like a floodlight that shines on Jesus. If the floodlight is doing its job properly, you never see the floodlight, only the object it's shining on. The Spirit brings glory to Jesus, not by shining its light upon himself, but by shining his light, taking from what is Jesus's and making it known to us. In other words, manifesting and mediating the presence and reality of Christ to you. That is how the Spirit works. And friends, we need the Spirit. That's why I love when the disciples in Luke chapter 11 ask Jesus to teach them to pray. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer, and then he tells them to ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. And then he gives them this promise. He says, if you then, who are evil, by the way, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now think about that. The Spirit brings glory to Jesus by taking from what is His and making it known to us. The Spirit is in love with Jesus. The Spirit is shining the floodlight upon Jesus. We need to know Jesus. We need to experience Jesus. The Spirit is the key to experiencing Jesus. And the Father, talk about delighting in the Trinity, talk about Trinitarian here, the Father says, how much more? I am willing, I am benevolent, I am over the top in giving the Spirit to those who ask Him. You want to know what the problem is? We don't ask Him. How many of you ask the Father monthly, let alone weekly, daily, and moment by moment, specifically for the Holy Spirit in order to fall more deeply in love with Jesus. The Spirit changes us by changing our fundamental direction in life, giving us a new attitude, a new heart, giving us a love for Jesus, if we would ask. 
See, this passage is constantly contrasting the person who builds his life on the foundation of God by the influence of the Spirit and the person who's building his life on his own foundation. The foundation of being the determiner of his own happiness, his own Lord and Master. The Bible calls this the flesh. Verse 6, he says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. That means separation from God, estrangement from God, alienation from God. It could lead ultimately to ultimate separation or hell. But even now, if your mind characteristically is on the things of the flesh, you'll you'll experience estrangement, alienation, death in this life. You'll see it in your relationship to God, yourself, others. You won't experience what you were built to experience. But the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give you life and life to the full. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Peace in the Hebrew mindset meaning shalom, meaning flourishing. The mind set on the Spirit will flourish. He's drawing out this particular contrast. He talks about sin disintegrating. He talks about the fact that he says in verses 7 and 8 that the sinful mind is hostile to God, meaning at enmity with God, and that it says it cannot please God. Notice those words. That's, we often call it the doctrine of total depravity. I think a better way of looking at it is the doctrine of total inability. Because look at what the text says. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot please God. I know I've given this illustration before. It's why I had to stay on the basketball theme this morning. At 14, I stopped at 5'3". So now at 60, I'm still 5'3". And at 14, you could have said to me, I'm holding a gun to your head. Go out and slam dunk this basketball. No amount of practice with no amount of floodlight would give me the ability. I had the doctrine of total inability to slam dunk the basketball. Guess what I have at age 60? The doctrine of total inability. As a matter of fact, at 14, I jumped about three inches. Now I don't know if I jump a half inch. (laughs) You have the doctrine of total inability to please God, which means you cannot change yourself. Now, let me just dovetail an application. So we can't make ourselves happy. We can't change ourselves. How do you think we do with others? Do you think you could change anybody else? Yet, how do we go about sometimes talking to others? Adult children, grandchildren, Am I stepping on toes? I don't mean to step on toes. But we cannot change anybody, let alone change ourselves. Unless God intervenes and changes the fundamental direction of your life, it is impossible for you to please God. Paul's point in this passage is to show us that if we're being changed, it must be by the Holy Spirit. And what we need to seek, what we need is the Holy Spirit. Not zapping us with energy, but showing us Jesus. Immersing us in the gospel. That's the new direction. Look with me at verse 9. He makes a transition. 
He talks about you cannot please God, and then he says, you, however. So he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to Christians. Are not in the flesh, meaning we're not dominated by the flesh. The flesh is still in us, but not governing us. It's not the governing. Remember Romans 6, we talked about that? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. For anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things with me here. First, notice the identity and character of the Holy Spirit. He is God, and he is a person. Notice how many times in these verses you see the terms spirit, spirit of God, spirit of Christ, spirit of him. They are all used synonymously and interchangeably. And this is so important for the encouragement of showing us that the spirit is giving us new life. Christianity says that God is one. He is one God in three persons. He's tri-personal. That's what makes God, by nature, relational. That's why Christianity is an experiential religion. You're experiencing relationship with a relational God. See, we want to keep things non-relational because I think it makes us feel better about ourselves. You know, if all you're doing is breaking a law, you know, I've shared this illustration before. If all I do is roll through a stop sign, I don't feel too bad. I mean, that's not such a big deal. It's just a law. I roll. I know I did wrong. I'll confess. But I roll. But when I hurt my wife, or I hurt my son, or I hurt one of you, I'm violating relationship. That's painful. That hurts. We grieve that. So one of the ways we forsake God, one of the ways we tend to broke, break, you know, live out of some broken you have different cisterns and wells, is we sit there and we lose sight of or we distance ourselves from the relational aspect of Christianity. Well, I broke the law of God. You realize what we're doing there? It's a great defense mechanism to not feel so bad about yourself. Rather than you violated the one who made you, the one who gave himself for you, the one who died for you, the one who is your life. We need, to t we need to see that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Father, Son, and Spirit are so one that when one comes, they all come. See, this is amazing. No other religion makes this claim that, actu that God actually comes to live with you. That you have new life because God actually takes up residence with you. He lives in you. Notice it says, if he doesn't live with you and in you, you do not belong to Christ. If you don't have the Spirit living in you, you are not a Christian. See, there's a very big difference between somebody visiting you and actually coming to live with you. I remember when we, before we lived in Florida, my parents moved to Florida in 1991, and Evie and Joel and I were still living in the Philadelphia area. We would often go and visit them. That was fun because we would play golf, go to the beach, go out to dinner, and then go home. We'd visit them. When we first moved to Florida, though, 2003, for three months we didn't have, our house wasn't ready, our home wasn't ready. And so we lived with my parents for that time. 
you could probably ask my mom about that too. And that was a little bit different because living is not the same as visiting. See, when you visit, there is less intimacy, less closeness. It's temporary. When you live, everything you smell, they smell. Everything you see, they see. Everything you hear, they hear. Now, God lives in you. He's not visiting. I often like to say God is not the Motel 6 leaving the light on. He comes to take up residence within you. What is he seeing? What is he smelling? What is he reading? What is he, vis- what is he experiencing? Let me apply this before we close this morning about the ministry of the Spirit, because the Spirit convicts. If sin doesn't trouble you at all, if you can live with sin very easily, basically swim in it without it bothering you or troubling you, I want to give you what I hope is a loving warning. According to this text, we should ask ourselves if we really belong to Christ because the passage clearly says the Spirit will change us. Doesn't mean make us perfect. Doesn't mean we have our act together. The church is a hospital for sinners, a hospital for flawed people. But the Spirit is changing us progressively, bit by bit. So if you're not even struggling with sin, that could be an issue and a reason to be concerned. But second, if you are struggling with sin, this text ought to comfort you. This text ought to encourage you. Because if you're feeling convicted, that's a good evidence. That's a good sign. Remember, on your own, you cannot please God. So if you're feeling conviction, you're not doing that yourself. You don't have the ability. Remember that doctrine of inability thing? Connect the dots. If you don't have the ability and you're feeling conviction, somebody else must be convicting you. That's the spirit. And that ought to give you an encouragement. But I love this line out of Tim Keller. He says that if we're building these steps... We need to remember to build this on the fact that there is no condemnation for the Christian. So he says, so don't be convicted because he will get you. Be convicted because he will never get you. He will never leave you. He will never not love or accept you. Be convicted out of mercy, not terror. We should be convicted because we are violating the one who cherishes and treasures you. We are violating the one who is so committed to you, so loves you, so delights in you. And the Spirit is showing us this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And forgive us that we neglect the Holy Spirit way too often. I really do pray that one of the ways I'll change and that we will change is that we will ask you, Heavenly Father, like you said, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? May we be a people bold in asking you for the Holy Spirit, trusting in the work you've said he's doing, to take from what is Jesus' 
and manifesting it to us that we would see Jesus more clearly. Open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the hope to which he's called, you, called us, the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn this morning. now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen. Amen.